Hey there, welcome to this week's 10-Minute Recap, where we get caught up on our assigned Bible reading so that you can read through the Bible this year with us here at Bible Discovery. So today we're looking at Joshua 9 through Judges 9 because that was our assigned reading this week, and it covers lots of controversial history. So let's get into it. Judges 9, it's the conquest of Israel. It's well on its way at this point. And there's a coalition of kings, which were kings of cities rather than countries. So these cities, kings band together to face the Israelite threat. But one city decides to take a different approach. The Gibeonites from the city of Gibeon, they actually trick Israel into making a covenant of peace with them. So Israel pledges to protect Gibeon in exchange for loyalty and tribute. Now, when the ruse is discovered, uh, Israel, it's leaded by Joshua at this point, they decide to uphold the covenant anyway, and they tax the Gibeonites wood and water for the upkeep of the tabernacle. Then in Joshua chapter 10, this covenant between Israel and Gibeon is tested immediately. The pagan king of Jerusalem makes an alliance with four other kings, and he attacks Gibeon for their covenant with Israel, likely hoping to send a message to all other cities that acceptance of the enemy won't be tolerated. Now, the Israelites meet this challenge, and in the battle, Joshua actually calls for the sun and the moon to stand still. Uh, basically, he wants time to stand still. So the Bible says that the day lasted until the battle was over. And Israel ended up taking a lot more territory as a result of this battle. Now, Joshua 11 records the Israelite defeat of another alliance, this time of northern kings that were, it was led by uh, Jabin, the king of Hatzor. Joshua 12 gives us a list of all the kings that Joshua had defeated, and Joshua 13 gives us a rundown of how much land was left to be conquered as Joshua's nearing the end of his life. And it's actually quite a bit of land. Uh, also, the divisions and tribal territories of the land on the east of the Jordan River are again laid out. Now, these were for the tribes of Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad. Joshua chapter 14 records how the land on the west side of the Jordan River was divided for the rest of the Israelite tribes, and there's a special land allotment for Caleb. Remember that Caleb was the only other Israelite spy with Joshua who was willing to participate in the conquest right after the Exodus. So Caleb gets the city of Hebron, which had a really special connection with Abraham and the patriarchs. Joshua 15 outlines the land given to the tribe of Judah, and we see a very old Caleb leading fighting men to take over the territory. We also see a marriage between Othniel and Caleb's daughter, which becomes important later because Othniel ends up being the first judge of Israel that God appoints to deliver Israel after Caleb and Joshua have both passed away. Joshua 16 outlines the tribal territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's two sons. So this is how Joseph, as a child of Jacob, received a double inheritance. Instead of just being the tribe of Joseph, his descendants got two tribes, and so two different land allotments. 
Joshua 17 continues talking about the tribe of Manasseh, detailing how they really struggled with the Canaanites in their territory because the Canaanites had iron-fitted chariots. Now, this was a massive technological advantage, but Joshua basically encourages them to clear some of the uninhabited land within that land allotment and build their own cities while also not being afraid of the chariot forces, but to still war against them. Joshua 18 records how the Israelites set up the tabernacle of God at the city of Shiloh, and they met there to divvy up the land. Uh, Benjamin's land allotment is outlined. Joshua 19 then gives us the allotments for Simeon, Zebulun, Issachar, Asher, Nephtali, and Dan, and there's a special allotment for Joshua that's outlined. Chapter 20 gives us the names of the cities of refuge, and then, of course, a refresher on what the cities of refuge were, how they were used. Uh, basically, they were places where accidental murderers could live without the fear of being executed. Joshua 21 gives us the names of the towns that were given to the Levites. So remember that the tribe of Levi didn't actually get a territory in Israel like the other tribes because their inheritance was the work of the priesthood. But they did get cities here and there kind of sprinkled throughout the other tribal allotments. And this was so that the Levitical families could actually live and raise livestock and grow food and, and all of that. Now, in Joshua 22, Joshua concludes that the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have fulfilled their agreement to help in the conquest of the land on the west side of the Jordan, and so they can now return to their inherited land on the east side of the Jordan. There is a drama, however, when the tribes stop at the Jordan and they build a massive altar there. Now, the rest of Israel sees this as apostasy, and so they gather to go to war against their brothers. But the priest Phinehas just goes to make sure, he goes to talk to them first, if indeed they are engaging in apostasy and idolatry. And he finds out that the altar was built as a sign. It wasn't built as a functioning altar, luckily. So they, they built it to signify their unity with God's worship at the tabernacle, not to institute false worship. So civil war is avoided. Joshua 23 records a warning from a very old Joshua to the Israelites that they must remain faithful to God and to their covenant with God and not become like the nations of Canaan. And then in Joshua 24, the last chapter of the book, Joshua renews the covenant one last time at the city of Shechem, which is where we get the famous Bible verse, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's then a record given of Joshua's death and burial. He was 110. And there's a note that they buried Joseph's bones, which just for interest would have been an Egyptian mummy. And they buried him at Shechem. And there's this record of the death of Eleazar as well, the, the high priest and the son of Aaron. All right, now on to the book of Judges. So in Judges 1, we see Israel gathering together after Joshua's death to ask God which tribe should now lead the battles of the conquest. And the answer comes back as Judah. So there's a record of the battle campaigns that the tribe of Judah led. Now in Judges 2, we see the angel of the Lord appearing to chastise Israel for breaking the covenant. They have not destroyed all the pagan altars and they've actually made covenants with some of the Canaanites. Uh, there's uh, also another record given here of Joshua's death, and there's a note that a generation after Joshua grew up not knowing God or being taught his works. Not good. 
Judges 3 records the consequences that the angel of the Lord said would come. Israel becomes oppressed and subjugated for seven years. And God raised up Othniel, that son-in-law of Caleb, to deliver Israel. There's a record of two more deliverers or judges, Ehud, who killed the king of Moab, who had subjugated Israel and was ruling them from the city of Jericho, and Shamgar, who was able to deliver Israel by killing 600 Philistines with an ox goad. Judges 4 records the history of Deborah, during whose time the king of Hatzor was oppressing Israel. So Deborah appoints a military leader for the nation and ends up herself as a prophet having to go into battle. And Jael, or Yael, another woman, is given the honor of killing the Canaanite military commander. Judges 5 records the song of Deborah, and we're told the land had peace for 40 years under her judgeship. Judges 6 records the calling of Gideon to deliver Israel from the Midianites. Now, in this chapter, Gideon must first tear down his father's shrine to Baal and Ashtoreth. And in so doing, he earns his nickname, which means let Baal contend. So basically, if Baal has an issue with Gideon tearing down his altar, then let Baal deal with it. Judges 7 records Gideon's defeat of the Midianite alliance with only 300 Israelite men. Judges 8 then showcases Gideon's moral failures. He takes vengeance on a city who wouldn't give him bread on his way to battle. He kills all the men of the city. Gideon also creates a golden ephod and begins to worship it along with the rest of Israel. We're told that the land had 40 years of peace, but this will be brought to an end through Gideon's own family, the sons that he had through many, many marriages, like a king a bad one, one that ignored the rules of God. And then finally for this week, Judges 9, Gideon's son Abimelech murders all of his brothers, 70 of them. Again, just just not great, Gideon, not great. The one son that escapes curses Abimelech publicly and then goes into hiding, while Abimelech declares himself king and begins to rule from Shechem, the city where the covenants to God were initially made. He rules for three years before the city turns on him, And this ends really badly for everyone involved. Abimelech destroys a temple fortress in Shechem, burns it to the ground with about a thousand people inside of it. And then he goes to the city of Thebes to take it over. But a woman successfully throws a handheld millstone at his head and he dies. It's a bloody, brutal end to the legacy of Gideon. Well, that's it for this week. So leave any questions or comments down below and let me know who your favorite judge is and why. Till next week, happy reading. Thank you so much for watching. We want to keep producing high quality biblical content, but we can't do it without your support. If you feel called to support us, please click the link in the description under donate. Your support really means a lot to us.